I shall be reading Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his death departs, he returns to the earth, and on that very day his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets his prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked, he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Well, before I begin, I want to give thanks for uh, to each of you for the time away. It was... Um, it was a time that was supposed to be marked by rest and uh, reading and reflecting. And um, we were able to, to do that, to visit a number of churches and to uh, speak with a number of leaders and find out what God was doing in many places and how uh, we're so pleased of what he's doing here. It was, a, it was a sweet time. It was instructive. It was encouraging. It was challenging. All those things. Um, as as most of you know, while we were away, my mother died. This brought us back from Minnesota a number of weeks earlier, obviously, than we expected. It afforded me time to be, Carol and I, to be with her and to uh, to be with her when she died, which we were very, very grateful. It was obviously not the plan that I had. But it was the provision that God made for us, and for that I'm very satisfied. Um, it was a, a sweet time, and I thank you for it, and I know that you've been praying for us, and I'm grateful. I'm also grateful for the leaders that we have here. I, I left not even doubting how it would go fine and it would go well. I know the pulpit was supplied very well. Uh, the elders were excellent in terms of having me unplug, which I did do. And uh, it, was, it was very helpful. They handled things. Nothing came across my, my plate. It was just wonderful. They did just an outstanding job. I, I felt so blessed by God that he has cared for his church in such a marvelous way, that he gifts his people, that when Christ said, I'll build my church, it was never built upon a man or a personality or a set of skills. And I'm thankful that you were able to see that, and I as well. Uh, there were some later moments that we had in the trip, as uh, we tried to reference one or two of them. Uh, coming back from Minnesota, it felt like about 8,000 miles of a drive in a day and a half. And uh, Carol and I, you know, we've been joined at the hip for two months, and we have loved every minute of it. It has really been sweet 
I mean, we saw each other every day, all day for months, which was great. About 800 miles into this journey, though, I knew we were in trouble when the way she was eating an apple, I began to think, honey, i got to instruct you on that. <laughs> and and uh, she was very sweet to me and listened. And, and so in false humility, I said, well, I'm sure there's some things I'm doing that are bugging you too. Fully expecting her to say, no, not at all, there's nothing. <laughs> She goes, you know, well, actually, the way you have to seem to correct every driver that does something wrong on the road is getting a bit irritating to me. (laughs) So we kind of went to our corners in the car for a couple miles, and we came back out of it. It was, uh, just glad that trip was over. I wanted to have her on the roof. She wanted me in the trunk. It was beautiful. No, it was a sweet time for us. You know, it's... uh, with such a change in one's day, I didn't know how it was going to be, but it was sweet. Um, but you know what? We missed you all greatly. You know, while away, we saw a lot of new churches, but they're not like ours. Not that ours is perfect, but we love this church. We love you. And uh, I can only agree with the immortal words of Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz that it's very good to be home. There's no place like home. There just is no place. So I'm thankful for that. Well, let's move on to the text. I want to ask you a question first, and, um, and I want you to think about this. Do you have, do you think, ESD? Do you have ESD? ESD is an acronym, of course, for uh, Election Stress Disorder. <laughs> it's actually part of the American Psychological Association's group of disorders, they've put out a survey, 52% of you are struggling with ESD. The symptoms are very clear. It's irritability, anger, fear, anxiety, frustration. I mean, this, I think you'd probably agree that uh, we're glad this election cycle is coming to an end. It, it has bordered on the theater of the absurd. Um, the arrogance, the misogyny, uh, the cronyism uh, has been significant. I mean, if it wasn't all true, it would borderline be comical. I remember a few years back seeing in the Greek legislature, they had some disagreement and fists started flying, things started flying across, and I thought, how could people behave that way? And then we just had to wait a few years. There is uh, one political commentator that's been covering presidential elections for 40 years said that he's never seen such a dispirited, despairing, issue-less campaign. And some anecdotal evidence, you know, in my community, when you drive down my road to Creedmoor, there's probably, I don't know, two, three dozen houses to get to the road, and every election cycle there are probably, I don't know, half a dozen to a dozen signs promoting their candidates, their presidential, you know, desire. There's none on our street. There's none. Not one. I, I, I mean, to, to a street, the diehard Democrat, four doors down to my, to my right, nothing. The diehard Republican, this guy is diehard, nothing. 
I mean, there's a dismay and a disillusionment among us over this. I mean, there's a, there's a sense of wringing of the hands across the board, frankly. And uh, the APA, that is the American Psychological Association, they do have a suggestion for us. They said two things. A, step back from social media. And, uh, and they said, you ought to do something pleasurable for yourself. Their suggestion was get a massage. <laughs> so, as Judy read Psalm 146, God has an idea for us too. And, and I'd like to remind you that Psalm 146 is the first psalm of the last five in the book of Psalms. They're called the Hallel Psalms because they begin and they end with Hallelujah, which is a Hebrew word for praise the Lord. We don't, the, the author of this psalm is uncertain, but the point is not. The point is that God is to be praised and worshipped and enjoyed regardless of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. And the psalmist is going to provide all kinds of reasons why that should be so. But the way we're going to look at the psalm is, the psalmist kind of puts two roads before us. One road is reminding us of the folly of trusting in human leaders, in princes. The other road before us is the blessedness of trusting in the God of Jacob. We have two roads. We're going to look at each one. And you and I have the choice of which road we're going to walk down. So the first road is, of course, the road of folly, trusting in human princes. Now, you see it in verse 3. The, the psalmist calls us in the first two verses to give praise to God. And then in verse 3, he says, don't put your trust in princes. Of course, he's warning us here, uh, because if we do root our trust in princes, we're not going to worship God. We're not going to give praise to him as in the first two verses. So he says it clear as a bell to me, do not put your trust in princes. Don't put your hope in a human leader. Don't put your adoration or confidence in a human leader like that. Don't do it. Now, if it wasn't such a threat to us, it wouldn't get the top shelf treatment that it gets in the psalm. Don't put your trust in princes. The word princes can mean noble. It can mean any person of significance. It can be a man or a woman. It can be a person of wealth, power, prestige, position. I think it could probably expand it to don't put your trust in science or medicine or education. Don't put your trust in any person or position or policy. Now, now you know, you know how we are, we kind of are a bit adoring towards those who are beautiful in our culture. Maybe we overly admire people that are wealthy and of, of position or stature. We tend to quickly submit or follow those who promise us the things that we think we need, or they're in a position to help us advance ourselves. And at election time, you hear it all come out. And election time is like Christmas. I mean, they tell you what you want. You want free college? You got it. You want a big military? It's coming your way. Hey, insurance for everybody, and you don't have to change your doctors? That's yours. Low taxes? Absolutely. How are we going to pay for all this? You never hear but you hear the promises. It, it, it goes out like candy at Halloween. Th these promises are coming to, to seduce us to trust in them. You know, Israel struggled with this as a nation. You know, Israel, when they were threatened, they would often make alliances, political or military or marital alliances, uh, rather than trusting in God. 
fact, in Isaiah 31, we read this. The Egyptians are mad. Now, Isaiah is prophesying to the nation because they were making an alliance with um, Egypt because of the threat from Assyria, the northern kingdom. He says the Egyptians are men. They're not God. Their horses are flesh, not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. You see this, uh, this warning that the psalmist is giving us here. Remember now, the context uh, most likely is 146 was written after the exile. They'd come back from Babylon. And, and, and the people were beginning to trust that Cyrus would provide, the Persian king Cyrus would provide everything needed to build the temple. And, and, and so we hear in this echo, of, don't trust in princes. Why? Because if you root your trust in a prince, whatever you begin to trust, whatever you put your confidence in, whatever you put your hope in, that's what you're going to adore. That's what you're going to love. That's what you're going to be devoted to. That's what you're going to be thinking about all the time. That's what you're going to fear if it's ever taken away from you. So he says, don't put your trust. It's folly to put your trust in princes. And then he gives us three reasons. He's very quick about it. You see in verse 4, he tells us, well, in verse 3b, the second part of it, first, these leaders are feeble. They're feeble. It says, don't put your trust in princes in whom there's no salvation. The the word for salvation means victory or deliverance. There is no salvation in them. No man or woman, no matter the wisdom, the power, the position, they can't save you. They can't save you from your sins before God. They cannot save you, your marriage. They can't straighten out a wayward child. They can't correct the self-destructive patterns that you may have in your life. They can't cure cancer. They can't do these things. They are unable. They're inadequate. They're not able to help you. They may have gray hair. She may look good in a pantsuit, but they're feeble. They're all feeble. They cannot change you. Do you realize that? Not only are they feeble, they're fleeting. Look at what he says in verse, verse 4. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. In other words, there's a play on words here in the Hebrew. The word for man is not a... The man is the same word for earth, just a different suffix. But it's the same root word. What he's saying is man is no different than dirt. Life is a mist. You know the mist. It's in June, maybe, May. There's some dew on the grass at 8 a.m. But by 9.30, that dew's just burned off. Or the flowers of the field... They may last a few weeks. They may last a month or two. But then the sun comes out and it scorches them. The grass of the field, you know the grass, it's so green and beautiful in May, but then by mid-July, it's just, it's just brown. It's dead. That's what men and women are like. Even the best of us, the ones that make it to 90 or to 100, you won't live forever. No matter how you eat, no matter how you exercise, no matter your gene pool, you won't, you won't go beyond a number of years. Do you believe this? You know, we, we do live in a culture that denies death. We don't want to think about it. Now, I've just come out of it, so I've seen it, but, 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 but we just deny it. We don't think it will be for us. 
But I want you to know that death actually reminds us of the truth of the scriptures. You know, God warned Adam and Eve to depart from him would lead to death. And they did. He warned them again in chapter 3 of Genesis. And then you see in chapter 5, read chapter 5 of Genesis. It's the death chapter. You, You hear, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Eight times you read about the lineage from Adam all the way down. He died, and he died, reminding us. All men, all women die. Even the most important. I think it was attributed to Charles de Gaulle that said, cemeteries are filled with indispensable men. Everybody dies. Don't put your trust. It's folly. It's folly to put your confidence and hope and to secure your well-being and sense of satisfaction and confidence in a human being. It's foolish. But not just is it feeble and fleeting, it's also flimsy. The plans are flimsy. Their policies are flimsy because they only last as long as they last. The legacies they hope to leave, it's a pipe dream. Now, let me just, just let's walk through history for a moment together. Uh, the great society of Egypt, what do you see of it? You see some pyramids. But the zenith that they were in society, the world power, where is it? It's in ruins. How about Greece? Greece with the mighty Alexander conquering half the known world. The Parthenon, the wisdom. Where are they? They're getting more bailouts from the EU than I got from my mother when I was in college. It's incredible. Rome, the great Roman army, the roads of Rome, the Colosseum. Where is it? It's in ruins. All the plans and and the policies and the strength of men and women. They perish. You know, when Tommy was getting into his teens, he started listening to a group I hadn't heard. Coldplay wasn't the part of rock and roll that I used to listen to, but he introduced me to them, and I liked a lot of their music. It's amazing the truth you hear from people. There's something intuitive. You know this. You know that the plans of men perish. Well, in their song, Viva La Vida, they say these words. They say, I used to rule the world. Seas would rise when I gave the word. Now in the morning I sleep alone, sweep the streets I used to own. One minute I held the key, next the walls were closed on me. And I discovered that my castles stand upon pillars of salt and pillars of sand. So they see this. Do not we also see it? We don't trust. It's folly to trust in princes. It's folly to trust in the promises of princes. Now, let me be clear here. To say it's folly to trust in human leaders, I don't mean to say that the government doesn't have a rightful and important place in our life. The psalmist is not saying that human leaders and church leaders, I've got to throw that in there, are unimportant. He's not saying that. No, in fact, in Romans 13, we know that the government has been ordained by God. In fact, Paul calls it a deacon. The government is a deacon to God, a servant to God, to to do his work to establish society with justice and order so that we can flourish and God's creation can thrive. Jesus himself said to Pilate standing before him, he said, you would have no authority over me unless it was given to you from above. So Jesus even says that. What I think the psalmist is saying is that the 
there should never be trust in human leaders in any way in the same measure that we're to trust in God. That human leaders are insufficient. They are unable to do what God, only God can do. And so don't trust in them. By all means, be engaged. Please vote. Use your gifts for the betterment of society that it would bring about a a culture and a society that would be um, conducive, that we might flourish in it. But we don't trust it. We don't look to men or women to do what only God can do. So I guess it brings us to the conclusion here, at least of the folly of trusting in princes. Do you trust in them? I mean, are you leaning too heavily on this election? Are you leaning too heavily in this election cycle? So ask yourself some questions. Ask yourself, uh, I mean, are you in a large measure of fear over what will happen come Wednesday morning? Do you find yourself getting significantly angry and bitter and frustrated and in fear over those that are in opposition to you and your policies and your views? Remember, they're not enemies. They're just opponents, political opponents. They're not enemies, but you see them as such. Uh, Has your joy in God been thwarted in this season? Have you struggled with worshiping God? during this season because of the consternation on your soul? Have you felt fear over your financial position or even the national security? Have you you seen that in them, in one of these two or three candidates, that our security is teetering on the edge and that's caused you great consternation? But, But let me move it back because maybe you're not all political. Maybe some of you have distanced yourself from it and, uh, and you're trusting more in medicine or education or technology. Many people are. This, this uh, cryogenic freezing is the thing now, which is paying a lot of money to have your body frozen so that by the time technology advances, science will be there to take what's left of your brain matter and, 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 and continue on in life with it. And people pay a lot of money for this. In my mind, is that what your hope is? For some, it is. They're banking on technology. I'm thinking they're probably paying the guy 15 bucks an hour to keep the lights on. He may switch the wrong switch, and uh, there goes your investment. You warm up a little bit, and it's over. But what is your hope? You know, I even see that with um, the situation with uh, walking through this with my mother. You know, I love the medical community. They serve us well, but they don't have an eschatology. They don't have a view of life beyond the grave. They can only try to advance life. It's hard for them. So we've got nothing for you. Is that where your hope is? Or perhaps your hope is in yourself. Perhaps you're just to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I'm the captain of my soul. I'm going to determine my own fate. I'm going to look within. I'm going to carve my own way through the forest. Maybe that's where your hope is. Well, the the psalmist is using the folly of this really as a foil to introduce where our hope needs to be. Look with me in verse 5. In verse 5, he says, Blessed is he in whose help is the God of Jacob and whose hope is in the Lord his God. Uh, he's, he's giving us an alternative here. In verse 5, we, we have, do not walk on the, on the road of 
folly, trusting in human princes, but we're going to look to this God of Jacob. Now, the word blessed, it's a beatitude is what it is. It's actually the 26th beatitude in the book of Psalms. Not unlike Jesus' beatitude in Matthew chapter 5. And this word blessed is an interesting word. It it, It means, oh, the happiness of one. Or it can mean satisfaction or serenity or peacefulness. And the psalmist is saying, there is blessings for you when you seek help and hope from the God of Jacob. Now, interesting, why would he say the God of Jacob? You know, if you know the story of the Bible about Jacob, Jacob's a bit of a scoundrel. I mean, the the guy is a cheat, he's a deceiver, he's really a thief. He colludes with his mother to deceive his brother and his father to get the rights of firstborn, which had some real financial benefits to it. He then he then connives from his father-in-law, who incidentally was a conniver. They kind of deserved each other, I think, when you read the story. But he was a real scoundrel. So why would God, the God of the universe, associate his name with such a conniver? It's the grace of God showing us this is my unmerited favor upon one that is so undeserving of it. This is the kind of God I am. I love the sinner. I listen to the prayers of the sinner. I redeem the sinner. Nobody can say, well, God's not really approachable by the likes of me because I'm so filthy of a human being when he says I'm the God of Jacob, that God has chosen to pour his covenantal favor upon one so undeserving of it that nobody in here can say, I probably don't have a chance with him. You couldn't say that. Because he's the God of Jacob. But not only is he showing the kindness of God, he says, blessed is he, so you can go to him. But then, but then what the psalmist does is he gives us these nine divine acts, inviting us to trust him. I mean, I mean you read through, as Judy, just the cadence of all the blessings and these divine actions of God. I mean, l- let's just look at them briefly in, in three buckets. God's inviting us. He's saying, you can trust me instead of princes because of my immeasurable power. Look in verse 6. It says that he who has created the heavens and the earth and the seas and everything in them, God's made it all. He's created it all. He sustains it all. He's he's purposed it all. I, I mean, he says, let there be light, and there's light. Just try tonight, just for fun. Go out on your front yard about 9 o'clock at night and just say that. Let there be light. Go ahead and give it a whirl. See what happens. He speaks and it happens. Now, if you don't believe, if you're here and you're looking at the faith, you're not sure that God is a creator, let me remind you, your life, to live without God as a creator, your life is random. I mean, it's no different than being on the back of a school bus going down a hill at 100 miles an hour and nobody's driving. Who knows? If he's not the creator, then everything becomes random. But if he is the creator, then he has no rival. He has no threat. He has no legitimate challenger. There'll be no surprise coming to him. His wisdom is unscrutable. His power is immeasurable. His beauty is unfathomable. 
And this is why the psalmist, David, in Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim his handiwork. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they proclaim knowledge. We live in the theater of his glory. All day long, you look out there, and he's just displaying to you a power that you cannot even get your mind around. That's why the psalmist in 121 says, From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He does not slumber. This is the kind of God that says, trust me. You can sink your trust in me. And you notice at the end of verse 6, he kind of slides in this little phrase, he who keeps faith forever. I love that. He, he is so faithful. And how do I interpret that? Well, because of its proximity to creation, I think he's saying that creation shows he's faithful. Every morning you get up, do you have to wonder if the sun is going to shine? Every morning when you wake up, do you, do you wonder if there's going to be, if the air is oxygenated enough for you to breathe? He has built into the rains and the seasons coming and the seasons going and the years passing. There's a faithfulness of God that we can never say we were uncertain if he would be faithful to us. Because you see it, when you get up tomorrow morning, guess what? The sun will be there. If not, it will be the sun. But the sun will be there if the Son of God will not be there. He is faithful. When you flag in faith, when you falter in faith, He will hold you fast. He is a covenant-keeping God. That when you're united with him in Christ, you will be secure forever with him in Christ. That's just in one verse why you should trust him. He invites you, look in 7 to 9. Look at the delicate care of this God. I I, I mean, I, I read that. He brings justice to the oppressed. He feeds the hungry. He frees the prisoner. He heals the blind. He lifts up the bowed down. He watches the sojourner. And he upholds the widow and the fatherless. Who are the objects of his mercy? Is it not the disenfranchised and the marginalized? I mean, does it not show an intimacy with God that he would care for them? And not just that, look at the activity of God here for just a minute. He's bringing justice. He's, he's feeding. He is, he is freeing. He's healing. He's, he's lifting. He's watching. He's upholding. God is not some grand watchmaker that kind of sets everything in motion and steps back and lets it all walk out. There's an intimacy. We're not deists here. We're theists. God is intimately involved in his creation. First sermon I preached in seminary, just because I loved it, was Psalm 113. And in verse 5, he says, who is, the, who is like the Lord our God? In fact, this is why we named our son middle name Michael. Michael is who is like God. A couple of different Hebrew words together. Who is like God? Who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. Notice that. He looks down on the heavens who raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make him sit with princes. There's something remarkable about the delicate care of God here, isn't it? That that not only does he minister so delicately, but to the most marginalized. And not only that, but you see the delicate care of them as he brings the wicked to ruin at the the end of verse 9. 
Justice will be served. The wicked will stand for all that they have done. This is the delicate, this is why we trust in him. But not just that. Look in verse 10, the third, the third reason that he invites us to trust in him. He says, the Lord will reign forever. In other words, he's not just, his power is not just immeasurable. His care is not just delicate and personal. But, but his reign will be forever, forever. Now, it, it's interesting. Again, remember now, uh, so this group, the, the psalmist that wrote this was probably after the exile. There was no king in Israel. The lineage of the kings was gone. It was destroyed when they were taken to Babylon. So they had no king. They were kingless, but they wanted a king. They knew a king was to come. Why? Because it had been promised in Scripture. God had promised a king. There was going to be a Messiah. God would would have a servant, he called him, a servant, a son. This son would be a Messiah. He'd be anointed, and he would be a king, and he'd bring God's kingdom. He would manifest God's kingdom to the world. That's what was promised. Zechariah 14. Also, Isaiah 61. Let me read it for you. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Do you notice the similarity in language between Isaiah 61 and Psalm 146? So where do you think he's getting it from? They know a king is coming. They're longing for a king. They're desirous of a king. The New Testament identifies Jesus Christ to be this king. I mean, Jesus actually self-identifies. You know, in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus begins his ministry, he goes in the synagogue and they hand him the scroll. And where does he turn? He turns to Isaiah 61 and he begins to read it. And then you know what it says? He sits down and he says, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your midst. What's he saying? I'm the king from Isaiah 61. It's also shown in Matthew chapter 1. You know, chapter 1 of Matthew, nobody has read chapter 1. Chapter 1 is he begat, and he begat, and he begat, and he begat, and he begat. 17 verses of beginning, 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 beginning. I don't know what the future past tense of that. But, but all that lineage. But what, what Matthew's doing is he's showing us that, that Jesus is the son of Abraham, giving him ethnic lineage to the promises that God gave to Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis. And he's the son of David, a royal lineage to the promise that David received from God in 2 Samuel 7, that he would have a son and his kingdom would reign forever. Matthew is establishing, that's the most important part of Matthew in some ways, for establishing Jesus, for establishing Jesus Christ to be the king that God had promised. But don't you see it in his ministry? What did he do in his ministry? Did he not feed the poor? Did he not give sight to the blind? Did he not take care of the sojourners as he healed the Canaanite's daughter and the servant of the Roman centurion? I mean, did he not free the demonized, giving him freedom from the prison that he was in? Does his ministry not show the kingly reign that he will execute? That we have a foretaste of his perfect reign. So Jesus is that king. Psalm 146 blooms in Christ. When you see it, you see it come to perfect 
fruition and completion in Christ. He was born as a mere mortal. He was born in poverty. He was born under Roman oppression, just like seven to nine to deliver us from it. This is why we can trust in a God, this God who is so faithful. So so what the psalmist is saying, you have folly on one road to trust in princes, to put your hope, to put your desires, to, to be in fear over this person or that person not being in or getting in. And it's blessings for the one who put their trust in the God of Jacob. So I asked you what it looked like for you to be trusting in princes. Let me ask you, what would it look like for you to be trusting in this God? What does it look like in your life? Well, let me give you some answers, and you can hold your heart against them. Uh, Number one, it would be that you have faith in Jesus Christ, that you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, that you, you see Jesus has come to bear our sin, to bear our shame, to bear our guilt as the king, that you see him as the one sent by God, that God will send no other. There is no other deliverer. There is no other king to come. That for you to say, I hope in God, and to not believe in Jesus is a contradiction. Jesus himself said in John 5, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent the Son. Do you see that? If you don't honor the Son, you don't believe in the Son, then you have no hope in the Father. The two go hand in hand. He says, Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. So there is that we root our faith in Jesus, that we we repent of our sins. We turn and we place the safety of our soul into the person and the very work of Jesus Christ. That as he goes in this life, so go I. But that's the first, that would show you have hope in God. Secondly, it would be your worship. The activity of your worship. Look back with me at 1 and 2, verses 1 and 2. The psalmist calls corporately everybody to praise the Lord in verse 1. But then you see him go kind of personal and intense, if you will. He says, praise the Lord, O my soul. He's speaking for himself now in his personal resolve to give praise to God. O my soul. Worship is not an external act. You don't come here and maybe sing a few songs, raise your hand. It's internal. It's I want to worship him with all my being. Listen to what he says in two. He says, I'll praise the Lord as long as I live. Well, I have my being. Worship is done. You have to worship. They don't worship for you. Worship isn't done while you you watch them worship and you kind of participate by proxy. No, you are worshiping. That's why we send a worship prep to you. You know, we give you the text, the synopsis, questions to get you thinking about the text. Keith wrote a letter. You got yesterday just preparing you for the text. We're trying to facilitate you uh, to come ready with all your being. You know, if you, if you just stand back, you don't like the song, and you're not singing, you're just letting everybody, you're not worshiping. I mean, maybe you're thinking, I don't mean to be so, uh, I don't mean to give a blanket statement like that. What I mean to say is that, that it involves all of you to worship. We can create an environment, but you have to join with it. But that displays a trust, because what you trust, you love. And if you love him, you're going to worship him. That's the threat to trusting other things. It diverts your attention. I mean, you know that. Whatever you sink your hope in, that's going to get your attention, your time, your words, your thoughts, your devotion. 
And so the way you worship, and with all of your being, it evidences, I trust in him, I love him. He's the only one I have. But not just that. Thirdly, your trust is seen in the way you live, the diligence of your service in life. Listen, trusting in God means that I believe his power is sufficient to use me to carry on this work of Christ. And the work of Christ is seen in seven to nine. Is my life being, is my life having any effect on any of the marginalized of our culture? You know, people say, I'm outraged over it. This one theologian says, don't be outraged about what's going on. Just be engaged with what's going on. Are you involved with the marginalized, the widow, the broken? I I mean, all of us should at some point be touching. If that's the ministry of our king, we continue it. You know, that's what I love. We love about the Cedar Point ministry. You know, I, I, let me remind you this historically. The church has always been the ones bringing mercy to the culture. You know, when the Romans were dumping their children on the trash heap because they had some defect or imperfection or the wrong gender, it was the church that got the children, the church that initiated the orphanages. The government stepped into this mercy giving. They're not equipped for it. They cannot handle it. The church is to do that. But we'll talk about more of that next week. But, but is your life reflecting in the trust? Or, or let me give you one more. Uh, your life evidences a deep trust in God as you're longing for him. You're longing for his kingdom to come. You know, we talked about this as a staff meeting. Uh, Daniel brought this up. He's kind of our resident scholar on the Lord of the Rings uh, trilogy. And he brought up the, the, the correct point that throughout the whole series, there is a longing for a good king to come. That's a good thing. It, it's fundamental to who we are. We want a good king to come. We see that in Isaiah 9, 6. The promise of a child being born, the prince of peace. What's, where will the government rest? Upon his shoulders. Because he's going to lead the government. He's a perfect king. This doesn't mean I'm not interested in politics. This doesn't mean I'm not engaged this doesn't mean that I'm un- I know that these elections have consequences. It just means that, that I see the, the impact on culture will come through the church. That, that we will be the ones. The dilemma, the human dilemma, will never be solved by a government. It will be solved by the gospel. And we are the ones that have the gospel. And then the last thing I would say to display trust, if you have trust in God, would be that you're going to be happy on Wednesday morning. Let me say that just straight up. You're going to be happy on Wednesday morning. Wednesday morning is going to be a good day for us because God is still going to be reigning. His son will be at his right hand. That, that, that it will be evidenced in the lack of vitriol in your conversation, private and social. It will be resting in the reality that God's purposes in this world will stand regardless of who is going to be occupying the seat of the presidency. I want to remind you that Iran and China are examples for us. These are two, at least according to many missiologists, the church has exploded more in these two countries than any other countries. And it happens that these two countries have governments that are not really sympathetic to the gospel. But that hasn't seemed to deny God his place to plant seeds and cause the church to grow. 
You know, the Hebrew Christians in chapter 10, they joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property because they knew they had better and lasting possessions. So we can be happy that your soul should not be downcast. Put your hope in God. In him is salvation. So I'm asking you to consider Psalm 146. Next week, we're going to look at how this is how we stand before God in election. Next week, we're going to look at how we deal with our government and people in the election. And then the third week, we're going to look at how the church impacts culture in this election. So let me pray for us, and then we'll prepare for the table. Father, thank you for the grace that you've given to us in this revelation. Lord, we can't change reality, but we can introduce a greater reality that you are sovereign and good and worthy of all of our trust. Father, would you grant to us the grace that we need that when our hearts begin to flutter over some aspect of fear, whatever it might be, that we would find in you, you're the creator of all things, immeasurable power. You are delicate in your care for us, involved in the intimate details of our life, and your reign will be forever. And it is now begun in the reign of Christ as he is seated on the throne now. So, Father, give us great joy and satisfaction on Wednesday. May we be people who rejoice in all things. Again, I say that we would rejoice in all things. And what holds us together, Father, give us the grace to see the gospel as our gravitational pull, not our views on politics or culture. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.